0: We are in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. John Calvin and Martin Luther both said something very extraordinary about the scriptures. And essentially what they said was this, that Christ himself comes to us clothed in the scriptures. So regardless of where we sit and where we are in reference to faith, the reality is if you want to know this man, Jesus Christ, he comes to us all clothed in the scriptures. Let us remember that as we read this first section of the passage that we're going to be in. Romans chapter 5 verse 12, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. Lord, be with us now as we engage your word. In Christ's name, amen. I recently took my boys to San Diego for a Padre Cub game. It was my son Yale's sixth birthday at the end of August. And I have a really dear friend of mine, childhood friend, who's now playing with the Chicago Cubs. So I called him a few weeks in advance and said, hey, I know you guys are going to be in San Diego. And that drive is only about six hours away or five, depending upon how fast you're going. Um, Would you be able to get us tickets He said, sure, that's no problem. My family's going to be in town. I'd love to get you tickets. I said, it's Yale's birthday. He'll love it. He'll want to be there. He'll want to see you. Um, If you can be at these tickets, that'd be great. So that Saturday morning of Yale's birthday, we take that six hour or five-hour, again, depending upon how fast you're going, trek to San Diego. I had great conversations with the boys along the way, a lot of laughing, a lot of moments where my temperature rose higher than it should in the midst with a seven-year-old and a six-year-old. But we got there, and when we got to the place that we were staying, I got a text message on my phone from my buddy who said, hey, make sure that you pick up your tickets at the VIP will call. All of a sudden, my chest got a little bigger. I've picked up tickets from guys who play professional baseball before, but you go to the player will call. You walk up, typically, you'll hand them your ID, and they'll say, hey, what player gave you the tickets? You tell them the name, and they receive the tickets back. Never before have I gotten to go to the VIP will call. Now, I do think I'm a very important person, but I've never... (laughs) gotten to go there before, and it was very interesting when you walk up to the VIP will call, because I was thinking as I was walking up that there are all these distinctions that go two ways in life, right? So one of them is when you walk up to a game, there's all these people outside of a stadium, and you only get through the gates if you have a ticket, so you're separated by a ticket. Now, for me, typically when I'll go to games, and certainly at this one, I got separated even when I walked in on the basis that I got my ticket, and then this VIP sticker that was in. So now inside the stadium, it split two ways. The VIPs, what a VIP sticker did for us is we got to go on the field before the game during batting practice and sit right there amidst the players. Now my kids love baseball, so they know more guys on the field than I even know that are on the field, and that was very interesting because it split two ways. Again, only and entirely based upon who you were associated with. The only reason at that moment that I was a VIP was not actually because I was a very important person, more like a very important peon, right? But I'm on the field because of who I'm associated with. In this passage, Paul lays out and says there's two realities to humanity. There's two types of humanity, those who are associated with Adam, the first man, and those who were associated with Christ. Those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. And the simple, tweetable phrase that comes out of this passage is that there is death in Adam and there's life in Christ. Two types of humanity, one in Adam, one in Christ. And we're going to begin to walk through this. That both of those realities, those two types of humanities, tell us why the world is the way the world is. It testifies to reality. So as we work through this passage, we're going to see the reality of death, the reality of life, and then the reality of the rain. And by the rain, I don't mean the water that comes down from heaven, but the rain, the rule, R-E-I-G-N, I think is how you spell it. But the reality of death, the reality of life, and the reality of the rain. So if you start in verse 12, therefore, just as sin came into, other passages say, entered the world through one man and death through sin. So death, hear this word, spread to all men because all sinned. Here's what Paul's saying in simple form is that the world that we live in is broken. It's decaying. It's dying. In fact, it is dead. Paul is saying that the world that we live in is constantly bringing before our nostrils the stench of death. Because of one man's act, Adam's act of disobedience. Now again, I would argue that every human being in this room, regardless of their beliefs in the Bible understands this to be true. I'll tell you what I mean. There was a 1991 movie called Grand Canyon. And in this movie, there's an immigration lawyer leaving a Laker game. And he drives out in his fancy sports car, and he begins to drive, and you notice by his face that he takes a wrong turn. And he's looking around, and he's trying to get back on the road of where he was ultimately going. And with each turn, like any good movie would do, suspense builds. The streets get darker. The community that he's driving in gets shadier and shadier. You see the expression on his face get more terrifying. And again, carrying on the theme of any good movie, the suspense builds as his fancy car stalls. And he has no idea what he's doing. He looks around. The streets are dark. The community is in is bad. He gets on a phone and he calls a tow truck. He gets off the phone of the tow truck and suspense builds again when there's five thugs surrounding him. Hey, nice car, man. Whose car is this? Right? and then all of a sudden they kind of walk by the car to look at it and they bump into him and you see his face is getting whiter and whiter as the scene is getting darker and darker. Right at the moment that you think they're gonna jump him, take him for all he has, take everything out of the car and off of the car that they want to take off of it, the tow truck pulls up and thank God, Danny Glover gets out, right? (laughs) So Danny Glover gets out of the car, and he doesn't even acknowledge the five thugs or the guy. He just starts hooking up the car to the tow truck. And you see these five thugs like, what are you doing? You, you can't do this. And so they begin to, like, yell at him, and they're, they're talking to him. And finally he looks at the chief thug, if you will, and he says this, man, the world ain't supposed to work like this. Maybe you don't know that, but this isn't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. And that dude is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different than what it is here. Now, here's what I mean. Regardless of who you are in the midst of the room, you know that you experience life in that very same way. One of my favorite illustrations that I've ever heard in this church was when Tom was speaking about the reality of sin in the world, and he said, just open up your phone. And he opened up the CNN app, and he said, let me just read to you the first 10 stories. And all of them are awful. All of them rise up within us, this sentiment of, that is just not the way it's supposed to be. Human beings aren't supposed to gas people. People are not supposed to kill other people. Parents of adopted children are not supposed to sell their children online. It doesn't feel like I should be in this amount of debt. It doesn't seem like our marriage should be this broken. It doesn't seem like work is supposed to be this hard. Relationships, friendships shouldn't be this difficult. I don't care who you are sitting in this room. That raises up within you. Now the Bible, whether you believe or you don't believe, testifies to why this reality is true. In Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11, the wisdom writer says that God has set eternity in the hearts of men. Now that doesn't just mean that you believe deep inside you as a human being that you're going to live forever. But eternity is the place where all things are set straight and God is on the throne. Eternally. He said eternity in our hearts, that there are these echoes within all human beings that they know at least in echo form that they can feel their way through life, experience their way through life, tangibly acknowledge it and go, this is not the way things are supposed to be. Paul says, let me tell you why that is. The Bible uses a word called sin. I don't care who you are in the room. You have to testify to why is that true? Why is it that what rises up within us is the sense of that is not the way it's supposed to be over and over and over again? Paul says it's sin. That sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. In that very first verse, let's just make some observation. Sin came into the world through one man's act of disobedience, Adam but it came in. That means sin is something larger than just breaking a little religious rule. Sin is bigger, it's not less than you and I making a wrong decision. Doing that thing we know we shouldn't have done. It's bigger than just not doing that thing we should have done. Now, the reality is the thing that you did that you shouldn't have done is sin. And the thing that you should have done that you didn't do is sin. But sin is bigger than that. That in that one act of disobedience, sin enters the world through this one man. And then death enters the world through sin. Sin is, in Paul's language, personified. It's a force. It is a reality that is now in the world that you and I partake in day in and day out. Because what the Bible says is that sin embedded itself in the deepest parts of the human heart. And now, as human beings, because sin entered the world, we sin because we're sinners We're not sinners because we sin. Do you see that? That sin has been embedded deep in the human heart, and now we live out of that, and that's why we sin. But sin is a force that entered the world and brought forth death. Death in the world, this stench that rises up to our nostrils, death in the world is larger than physical death. But not less than. We die physically because sin's in the world. But we live in a world that we constantly go, it's not the way it's supposed to be. Because we live in a world that's dead. That's experiencing death. The logic of Paul when it comes to Adam is that through Adam, sin enters the world through his one act of disobedience. Death comes into the world through this one act of disobedience. Death spreads to all men, and therefore the world and all human beings are condemned. Now, follow that logic. Adam, sin, sin spreads all. death comes through sin, death goes to all men because all sinned, therefore worthy of condemnation. So as we go back, we go, okay, Adam was spoken of in Genesis chapter 3. Now, if you're one of those people that want to turn there, turn there. I love hearing the pages of the Bible turn. You can turn to Genesis chapter 3 if you have a Bible, or you can go on your app and look at it. Now, to remind you of this scene in Genesis chapter 3, God had built this amazing world and said, play to the fullest, rule and subdue it, be fully human in the midst of this to Adam and Eve. He said, but there's one tree that you would not part- do not partake of, and if you do... In partaking, you will die, and in dying, you will surely die. Now, Adam and Eve begin to buy this lie from this intruder, this one who enters into the scene that is the enemy the Bible portrays, Satan himself, who has a history with God. He was a created angel that rather than being a ministering spirit, as Hebrews tells us, and angels should be they're a creation rather than the creator. He seeks to be like God himself and is cast out of heaven, and has made it his duty to get all of the rest of God's creation to buy the lie that he believed. So he portrays to Adam and Eve, "Hey, God told you not to eat of that tree, because if you eat of it, you will become like him." Adam and Eve begin to say, hey, that sounds really good. I can become like God. And in their sin, they die because they've de-godded God. Now, hear me when I say that. De-godded God, what does that mean? God's no longer God. No, God is God regardless of our actions. But in their hearts and in their minds, the Bible says set apart Christ the Lord is holy. In that moment, they set aside God and they began to live for themselves, and in so doing, death enters the world, and death has massive ramifications. There's four alienations, separations. They become alienated from four things at this moment. The first thing that you see is they look down after they sin, and they're like, "Oh my, we're naked." Where their eyes were meant to be looking outward, Godward first and outward toward other people. Their eyes looked inward and shame came upon them. They became alienated from themselves. Now God enters the scene in Genesis chapter 3 and it says they hide from God. Their hiding from God says what the real situation is. The fundamental main alienation that gives the impetus to all the other three. They've been alienated from God. They tried to be God. They de-godded God. They became self-centered. They put themselves at the center of world history, of the story, and they became alienated from God. Therefore, they became alienated from themselves because they were never meant to be God, they were the creation. They begin to be alienated from themselves, self-absorbed, shame, insecurity. And then you see that they're now alienated from each other. So we're alienated from God, ourselves, one another. And relational breakdown happens in that moment. Entire relational breakdown. They begin to blame each other. It was your fault. No, it was your fault. And then lastly, they're alienated from all the rest of human life, from creation. Everything that would happen, that was meant to happen harmoniously and to flourish, no longer does. That is why we say things aren't the way they're supposed to be. There's a Christian poet right now that I like a lot. And he has, he understands this, um, this reality of these alienations. And he's penned these words. It's actually a song called Economy. But he says this, raise your voice. He's speaking right now to this reality of living in this dark current Or, lake of darkness and sin called life. Raise your voice, chase away the ghosts. The pain that haunts a heart, the things that we fear the most, the entropy of life, the slow decay of time that wars against our bones. He says, all these sinking ships are ruled against the wave, the raging of the tide, the tyranny of days, and sleep would chase us down. Sleep would have its way, and night would fall upon us all. Now, let me break that down for all of you who aren't poetic. I use the athletic illustrations for you guys. This is for the more artistic people, so let me break it down for those of you guys who don't entirely understand it. He starts off, and he goes, raise your voice, chase away the ghosts. Ghosts are friendly or scary? Scary. Chase away the ghost. Then he says, the pain that haunts a heart. I'll tell you this, the longer I live, which I don't consider myself old, but as each year passes, it becomes astounding to me the pain that is human life. This week alone, I talked to a friend of mine um, who has an ongoing battle with a chronic illness that is nothing short of insidious. I talked to a woman who for a long, long, way too long period of time has been deceitful with her spouse and how she's handled money and has racked up hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of debt and she's living under the reality of it. I've talked to people with deep physical pain, deep emotional pain, spiritual pain, all of it, their human life is painful. And then he says this, the things we fear the most. Never in my life have I considered myself a scared person, and yet more times now than any time in my entire life, I experience deep amounts of fear. I have too many nights that I wake up concerned with all of the things that could happen. And there are moments I sit in my bed and I try to rationalize, that's never going to happen. But the reality is, in this world, it could happen. This world is painful, and those things could happen. So when God says, do not fear, it certainly isn't because life isn't scary but it's because he's in control. This poet testifies to that, the things we fear the most. And then he uses this great language, the entropy of life, the slow decay of time that wars against our bones, and all the 65-year-olds go, amen, right? (laughs) Like the older you get, the wars against our bones, that life feels like that, like it's entropy, like it's a slow decay of time. And then he says, days feel like tyranny, the raging of the tide, the tyranny of days, like death is constantly chasing us down. Not just physical death, but life, that we are living in the midst of a raging river that is black and dark with sin. A raging river that is insidious, that is heinous, that is despicable, that makes life painful, that makes our heart raise up and go, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. It is a raging black river of sin that was started in a man named Adam. And through Adam came sin, through sin came death. Death spread to all men because all sinned and now we are worthy of condemnation. Look at verse 16. Romans chapter 5, verse 16. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin, for the judgment, here it is, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Now there's many people here that hate the word condemnation, and we've talked about this already in our study, is that wrath or the condemnation of God doesn't sit well with us and people don't like it. But let me tell you this, if God is life, he's therefore anti-death and he hates everything about it. He condemns death. He looks at a river that's insidious, heinous, despicable, deceitful and he says that's death I condemn it. Like a father who loves his son, continues to love his son but he hates the alcoholic in his son and will condemn the alcoholic, the drug addict, the liar, the deceiver because he loves his son. God is pro-life, therefore, he's anti-death. God is pro-life, therefore, he says, you've got to understand that what you're swimming in isn't normal. It's not normal. The problem with us is that we continue to swim in these waters, and the older we get, we just accept this is just the way it is. It no longer seems heinous to us. It no longer seems despicable. We hurt, but we forget why we hurt. We experience pain, but we forget why we experience pain. We just go, it is what it is. Sin, the Bible tells us, is deceitful like that. Sin wants you to actually believe it. It's not that big of a deal. This is why we're supposed to gather together in the community. And Hebrews says, don't forsake gathering together, lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Who's behind the deception? The enemy. The one from the beginning that empowered Adam to believe a lie. And it says that enemy is a liar and a deceiver from the beginning. All of this stuff that you take on from this river of life that's insidious in sin. That you appropriate for yourselves. You take in and you begin to believe the lies. They're deceptive lies that lead to death. They're anti-life. They are deceptive. That's why God brings the law in. So he says in Romans chapter five, as we go on just from this section in 12, he mentions the law and he says, for sin was indeed in the world before the law was given. It started in Adam, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of who was to come. Now move on verse 20, 520. And he says this, what was the reason for the law right here that Paul gives? Now the law came in to increase the trespass. Now hear me, the law had this grand purpose to lay out for the Israelites what life was meant to look like and for them to live in a life-giving way before the nations. But as they sought to live up to the law, so the law was good, As they sought to live up to that law and show to the nations, this is what life looks like with God as your head. As they sought to live that up, they realized there's a deep problem within them and it was in their human hearts. And the law was brought forth that they might see the reality of sin. So the law is a little like the image that is being projected up here. If you were to see this, like if you think back to a slideshow... This is the modern-day version of this, but there's a little colorful slide, right? And you look at it, and it's barely there. And if you put a slide in a projector, an old-school projector, that little slide, you can't even hardly see the picture of it. And that's how we view sin. Oh, it's just—it's kind of just a little cute thing sitting there, right? White around the edges. You can't kind of make out the picture. you got to hold it up to the light to really see it. Just this little thing. What the law did is it came and put it in the projector and put a light behind it and projected it on the screen. Wham! That's your sin. That's our sin. That's the world's sin. That's the problem with the world. Sin. That was the reality of the law. That the law was there. And all of a sudden that we would then look upon that and go, the world is worthy of condemnation. I'm worthy of condemnation. That should be hated because it's anti-life. It's pro-death. That's the water, this current, this river that we are swimming in of Sin. So here's the deal, redemption, Gilbert. We cannot view sin as this little, simple breaking of a religious rule. It is a force. It is personified. It's what takes us down the slow decay of time. It's what's warring against our bones. It's insidious. It's heinous. It's horrendous. It's what makes everything awful. It's what makes everything awful. That same poet I mentioned Earlier, his next stanza of this poem says, the weight of love, it rests upon us all. The people we've become, the people that we've known. And he says this, we're longing for a day arrested by a hope. Now listen to this, I love this line. We're longing for a day we're arrested by a hope that death cannot foreclose upon. We're longing for... God, is there something out there? Is there something out there that death will not foreclose upon? Or is this what we're relegated to forever, this type of life, this type of heart? Is this what my life's relegated to for the rest of my life, the things I wanna do, I don't do, the things I don't wanna do, I do? Is this what I'm relegated to for the rest of my life that when I open up the CNN app, all that is portrayed to me is the heinousness of the world? We're arrested by hope. God, give us a hope that death will cannot foreclose upon. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, For the judgment following the trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's sin, trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. The reality of life, the reality of Christ death in Adam, life in Christ. The free gift of grace is far better than the trespass. Now, hear what Paul's doing here because he starts off and he goes, the gift is not like the trespass. Don't be fooled to think that Adam and Christ are opposites but equals. Okay? They are opposites, but they are not equals. Don't be mistaken about this, okay? They are opposites, but they are not equals. My son, Yale, six-year-old, is is one of these boy boys, loves to wrestle. So these moments, almost every single night, I'll come home, and he'll have a moment where he wants to do something, or I'll just get it going just by saying, boy, I'm going to work you like a fine concerto, right? And he knows. (laughs) That means at that moment, he gets his face on him, and he goes. And at that moment, it's him against I, right? We're opposites, but we're not equals, (laughs) he'll come running at me and I'll stiff arm, boom, and he goes, boom, boom, right? And then he'll get back up, his eyes will get big, he'll get his mad face and he'll go back even further and think, if I go further, I'm gonna get even more force and he runs and he realizes at that moment, we're opposites, but boom, not equals, bam, bam. That's what Paul's saying here. Paul is saying right here, these are opposites, but they're not equals. Look at the numbers of times he does this. The free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many, not equals. Now you go, what was behind Adam? Well, that slithering snake, the devil, right? So why is Adam not Christ's equal? Because Christ is the one who created all things. By him and for him, all things were created. Adam was a mere creation. Don't be mistaken, church. The devil and Christ are opposites. They're not equals. The devil's a creation, not the creator. They're opposites. They're not equals. Death and Adam... Life in Christ. So, what does Jesus do? What does God do through Jesus? What do we say? God is to the core of his being pro life and therefore anti death. So, from the very beginning, when Adam sins and death spreads to all of the world and all men. It's the logic of Paul throughout the book of Romans that this the life has become a raging river of dark, insidious, heinous sin. God says from the beginning, it ain't gonna stay like this. And he begins a plan to make that dark, insidious, despicable water of life that's sin, he desires to make it righteous, clean, crystal clear. So what does he do in order to do it? God the Father decides to go fishing in the dark pool, raging river of sin. And he uses as his bait, Christ. And he says, I'm gonna go fishing in there with all of us who are swimming in there as fish, swimming around and the one large cosmic battle that he has against the enemy and the darkness of sin that's been created against Satan's sin and death that make up this water that we're all swimming in called life. He says, I'm going to go fishing there. And he hooks up Jesus' bait, and from the very beginning that the bait goes in the water, the enemy begins to go, I'm going to tempt him. Do this, do this, do this. And then in the end, the enemy thinks he wins. And he comes up and sees Jesus, and like a large tiger fish in the water goes, and he kills Christ swallows him up, rejoices and thinks he's won. But God the Father has the line, does he not? And he yanks it back, not just to catch the enemy, but he yanks it back so hard with someone so strong that the enemy only thought he was mere bait that he could swallow and didn't realize that he was the Lord of life. And God the Father pulls it so hard, he obliterates the tigerfish the enemy and in so doing all the shrapnel all the result of that begins to filter in to this water of decay and death and life is bright in Christ so at that moment in this river Christ becomes a channel typically you think the channel goes in opposite directions and in some way they do but this becomes a center channel in the middle of this dark despicable river of sin becomes a clear path of clear Crystal clear, fresh water in the midst of it. Jesus heads the way. That's where 1 Corinthians 15 says. He becomes the first fruits of this new humanity, of the new creation. And he begins to call us all to him. And in faith, we enter into the stream and we're a channeled center stream of fresh water in the midst of dark, despicable sin because of what Christ has done. This is the word he says here is that he brought, for the judgment and trespass brought condemnation. This is the last part of verse 16. But the free gift falling the many trespasses brought justification. Now, I want you to see the benefit of this reality of Jesus Christ blowing up the tiger fish, if you will. The benefit of that is we are now called in faith to be Justified. And by faith, we can now stand before a holy God as people with sick, despicable, sinful hearts and made right with God. But let me tell you, he talks about this free gift. And my fear is that many of us view the free gift of grace and think grace is just forgiveness. It is forgiveness. Or we think it's just being made right, that God now looks at us and goes, you're right because you're in Christ. It is so much more than that. Grace is actually God giving himself, not just to forgive us, but to forever bring us into his triune life. That's called adoption. That in that moment, the benefits is that we become a part of the family. This is so much better than even the beginning in Genesis chapter one before sin. We were creatures created that walked with God. Now we walk in God, in him. We are in his family. We now become a part of him. I have a a daughter, two and a half year old daughter, and people told me often that you'll see that girls are way, way, way different than boys. Way different. And they can schmooze dads like you wouldn't believe. That's what people say. I'm like, "Ah, I don't know. I don't know if I really believe it. Now I have this two year old daughter. She's really smart, okay? So she'll have these moments where I'll come home and you're so cute and I'll try to give her a kiss and she'll say, no kisses, Daddy. I'm like, oh my gosh, but I just wanna kiss you, you're beautiful, and I wanna kiss you, no kisses. And I'll kiss her, no, 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 no kisses, okay? But then she has moments where she gets in trouble. And I'll be in her dish, right? You can't do that, Lucy, you're gonna to go to your room and she'll go, she'll get these eyes and she'll go, Daddy, I need a hug. <laughs> and then she'll go, Daddy, I need a kiss. And everything within me at that moment goes, I wanna kiss you. Like most of the time, you say, I don't want kisses. Like, I wanna kiss you. My my wife's like, no, 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 no. Don't do that, right? (laughs) Now, that's the result of her manipulative sin. But imagine it were reversed and I had wronged her deeply. I had wronged her deeply, and then she looked at me and said, Daddy, I need a hug, I need a kiss. Or imagine it in a marriage, right? What typically happens when we wrong someone deeply? There's a separation, right? Maybe a separation of houses that you go in one house and the other person goes in another house. Or a separation, you go in one room and they go in another room. Or maybe you do sleep together because you've decided that the sun wouldn't go down on your anger, but you sleep on one side of the bed and they sleep on the other side of the bed. Imagine in that moment, the moment that created the separation if the alternative person who had been wrong said, I need a hug. I need a kiss. That's what God the Father did for us. That in our heinousness, we de God, said, I don't need you, wronged Him at the deepest possible level, and from the very beginning, He said, No, I'm bringing you in. I'm bringing you in as close as close could possibly be. That's the great gift of grace. So when we get in that center channel with Him, we're His sons and were his daughters, bearing the family name of Christ. We sit in there to then take up the family business, right? To be the family people. There's a way in which we live, and we live it before people, and there's family business now, and this gets us to this very last verse, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, that word eternal life could be resurrected life, that Jesus Christ, when he raised from the dead, obliterated the tiger fish, set up that center channel and said, I'm the first fruits of the new creation. This is what resurrected life look like looks like. That means, church, when we get called into that center channel of fresh water, we're living eternal life now. Certainly there is a promised hope of the future in which all things will be set straight and life will be the way it's supposed to be. But Jesus book broke through, set forth the resurrection now that we might live eternal life before the world. We might experience it, the privilege of it, and the purpose of it, to live it before people. Now, think about the purpose. Go back up to verse 17 and he speaks about this reign as well. He says this, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now, I love this. You know, The book of Revelation says that when we come before and we're justified only by faith in Jesus Christ, nothing by what we have done, that when all is set straight, we will reign with Christ. That means rulers, we will be rulers. Verse 17 says that that breaks into the present. And when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you get in that fresh water channel in the middle of this dark river of sin called life, That you reign now. That's why Peter says we are a royal. Royal means reigning. Royal priesthood who declare to a dead world, this is life. And our head is Christ. So what does this is life look like? This is what it looks like when somebody wrongs me. It's called forgiveness. Because forgiveness brings life. This is what business practices look like. When you sit under the Lord of life, Jesus Christ, this is what family dynamics look like when Christ is king, the Lord of life. This is what handling our money looks like when we serve the Lord of life and live in this new humanity, the kingdom of God. This is what stewardship looks like when Jesus is king, what race relations look like, what recreation looks like when Jesus is king. Redemption, Gilbert, that's what God's called us to. Amen? That's the life he's called us to, that we might experience abundant life and live that before the world. Amen? Let's pray. God, we love you. And thank you for your extraordinary, abounding, lavishing grace upon us in which you call us to be your very own children. God, thank you that you fix us, but thank you that you're fixing this world in which we live in. God, all will stand before you. So we pray that many might have faith and be in Christ rather than in Adam. In his name we pray, amen.